0: It is perhaps the embarrassment of riches and decades of believing that more is better, especially with so many medicines and medical procedures to choose from, that has gotten U.S. healthcare into a situation where it must now confront the hard facts and expensive, harmful consequences of too much medicine. The do-everything-and-anything approach has given us some amazing breakthroughs in care, but also an explosion of tests of questionable value, procedures that may not be beneficial over the long run, maybe even not over the short run, screenings that can spark more worry than guidance. So we could spend the day discussing how we got here, but instead we're going to use this hour to think through together how we can curb medical overuse. Choosing Wisely and Costs of Care are two examples of strong initiatives, working hard to raise awareness and change some behaviors. Today we're going to hear about a new initiative to throw open the doors to patients and providers alike for solutions. And that's all coming up on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. This is our sixth year of coming to you biweekly, and also you can find us later on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and IHI's Director of Communications. So I hope I'm not out on a limb when I say that most of you joining today share the concern about unnecessary care and overtreatment. You may not be as clear on what a social movement around this issue could yield. And that's where our guests come in as we anticipate Right Care Action Week later this month. So we're adding activism to the mix of improvement methodology, Methodologies, that is. And that's our agenda this next hour. But first, here's IHI's John Gothier with some reminders about how to make the most of your time with us on WIHI. John.
1: All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, Just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of the screen is our chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed at all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto this computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through your speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable Internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. Uh, their number is up on the screen right now. A simple way to, hi- simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI customer service know. We have their numbers on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I'll provide a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive, oh, archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. Now, finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WHI and we need your help for that. Please take some
0: time after the program to fill out a quick survey and let us know
1: how we've done. Back to you, all right,
0: thanks so much, John. And if you like to tweet, thanks for including at the IHI in your tweets. And that way we can include some others in the conversation. And you'll hear about some other hashtags coming up. So I want to now introduce our panel today. And I also want to welcome all of you as you log on to today's WIHI. Joining me in the studio, Shannon Brownlee is Senior Vice President of the Lowne Institute, which was founded by the cardiologist and humanitarian Bernard Lowne. She is a co founder. Founder of the Right Care Alliance, and that's a network of clinicians, patients, and community leaders working to spark change in health care through social activism. Shannon also serves as a visiting scientist at the Harvard School of Public Health. So, welcome, Shannon. Thanks, Madge. Next to Shannon, across from me, Aaron Stuppel. Do I have that right? Stuppel? Stuppel? Stuppel is a hospitalist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in the Department of Medicine. He's been involved with the Right Care Alliance and their work against overuse since medical school. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you. To my left here, my left elbow, Jim Conway is an adjunct lecturer at the Harvard School of Public Health. His areas of expertise and interest include governance and executive leadership, patient safety, change management, crisis management, and patient family-centered care. Jim is a former, former senior vice president of IHI and a former IHI senior fellow. We're so glad you're with us, Jim. And joining us by phone, we've got Kadar Mate. He is currently a senior vice president at IHI. He oversees the development of innovative system designs to implement high-quality health care, both in the United States and in resource-limited settings abroad. Kadar is an internal medicine physician, an assistant professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College, and a research fellow at the Harvard Medical School's Division of Global Health Equity. Thanks, Kadar, for being part of today's discussion. Always a pleasure, Matt. All right, fantastic. All right, we're going to get underway. The first question goes to Shannon Brownlee. So you wrote a book eight years ago, many know of it, called Overtreated. And as I recall, it got a lot of attention. Don Berwick, in a very flattering way, has even called you or called you the Thomas Paine of healthcare. So with that, you've probably been tracking quite a bit. So I'm wondering, how has this issue of overuse overtreated, as your book said, gained traction over these years, and where do you think we are now? And welcome again.
2: Thanks, Madge. Well, it's been incredibly gratifying to see the shift, because I have to tell you, when I started writing about overtreatment in the late 1990s, (coughs) editors would look at me and, and say, but of course PSA saves lives. Of course stents save lives. What are you talking about? And um, that, was, that was about 15 years ago. And in, in the intervening years, we've seen tremendous ferment around this issue, particularly in the last four or five years. So we now have cost of care, which started out focusing on prices and then very quickly pivoted to the issue of overuse. Uh, we have the conversation project, which is at least in part about making sure that, that the elderly and the frail and dying are not receiving unnecessary care, which I think is a special form of abuse. Um, we have Choosing Wisely, which was launched the week before our uh, first Loun conference in 2012, and incidentally, I think that, that meeting was the first medical meeting to focus on, um, on the to- topic of overuse in the U.S. and possibly in the world. Um, and, and, but I have to tell you, since, since publishing overuse, overtreatment, um, I've come to see overuse a little bit differently. Um, I've come to see it as being incredibly pervasive. It occurs in every specialty of medicine, every site of care. It happens in hospitals. It happens in primary care pl- clinics, in ORs, in EDs, in nursing homes. And, and it, I've s- come to see it as being woven into the fabric of medicine and nursing. Um, I've also seen that it comes at an untold cost. Now, certainly we have estimates for the billions of dollars that are wasted, but we don't actually have tallies for the number of patients who are harmed um, because until very recently it wasn't even seen as a topic worthy of serious research. But I've also seen it as the flip side of another problem, which is underuse. Every dollar that we spend on care that a patient doesn't need or doesn't want is is money that's not spent on caring for a patient who does need care. It's a dollar that's not spent on a patient who doesn't have good health insurance. It's a dollar that's not spent on making sure people have access to the right care. Um, and I see overuse and underuse together really as symptoms of a deeper dysfunction, and that is a healthcare system that is viewed more as a commodity than a common good, a practice of medicine and nursing that is treated as a series of transactions, a dysfunction where patients are too often treated not as vulnerable human beings, but as widgets on a conveyor belt or, you know, a means to a financial end. And the opportunity in this country to be healthy is seen not as a privilege, not not seen as a right, but it's seen as a privilege. And so I think we're facing a historic choice. Do we want a system that we treat as a commodity or do we want something better than what we have now? Um, and do we want to address the underlying assumptions that drive poor care? So there is a lot of ferment in healthcare. care. There are a lot of technical initiatives, choosing wisely, cost of care, et cetera, all of which are incredibly important. But even if they all succeed, will they really change that underlying problem, which is healthcare care as a commodity? And I don't know that they will add up to the transformation that we all are looking for so that's why we founded the Right Care Alliance. Um, We think that transforming the system really requires a movement, and when I say movement, I mean a boots on the ground, old-fashioned, ordinary people demanding change movement. And they're going to need to do that in solidarity with activist healthcare professionals. So we launched Right Care Action Week, which is coming up this October 18-24, um, to do two things. One, to show in small ways how much better the healthcare system could be and should be. And two, to give activist doctors, and nurses a sense of the power of collective action. You know, it's one thing to count the number of instances of overuse. Uh, You see in your own hospital and clinic, which is one of the actions that we're recommending or that we're promoting and that is going to be done around the country, um, count the the instances of overuse and report them to uh, the, the Right Care Action website. But that can feel really lonely if you think you're the only one doing it and that nobody in your institution cares about what you're doing. But if you know that others in your hospital are doing it, or that other people in other parts of the country are doing it, um, it starts to be a different kind of feeling, and that kind of collective action starts to matter. We want Right Care Action Week to be the, to healthcare what Earth Day was to the environmental movement—a moment when many people stop and think simultaneously. This has got to change.
0: Okay well thank you very much it sets uh, sets sets up well now for Aaron and um Shannon started to talk a little bit about the week itself but um I'm going to ask you to do that, but first, uh, maybe get into that. I was struck on our planning call about this, where you said to me that as a new physician, you're concerned that doctors seem too disconnected from public goals, the sort that Shannon was just talking about, and perhaps understand their professional roles better, maybe not so surprisingly, than this more public role. And, um, I was thinking, wow. Um, is it changing at all here, here are kind of boots on the ground letting us know because Shannon's referring to programs we know our own IHI open school costs of care others are trying very very hard to imbue curricula uh, all kinds of programs now with a greater awareness around overuse so what do you see kind of in in your domain and then tell us a little bit about the activities coming up Thanks
3: thanks so much um, yeah so I know, you know as a recently graduated resident um, uh, and recently traveling the journey of medical school my experience is certainly limited to what i've seen largely but um, based on the, you know my colleagues and um, my personal experience is that you know 99% of what we do uh, in medicine is really focused on individual good and you know the back in med school you know the, def- the definition of the profession of medicine you know, the what is the professional mission? It included a service to the public and the private good. But, um, you know, when, you, when I have conversations with my colleagues, um, you know, we, we know about, um, you know, things like chest pain and what to do when the heart's not working. But when we look at something that costs a lot of money or look at this systemic dysfunctions, people get upset and they throw their hands up in the air, but they don't have, we don't have a plan. We don't have a, a, a conception about how to move forward with that. And, uh, you know, the, just the other day I was um, in, a, in the emergency room taking care of a patient who had uh, recently been admitted for constipation and then was back again with hip pain. And um, in the in the week that she'd been out, she managed to be able to go get a mammogram at age 83 but wasn't able to really get involved and get connected with her primary care doctor. And we were all just kind of looking around at each other saying, you know, oh, my gosh, but we, we, we lack a currency for really approaching that and um, as you mentioned you know there certainly are a lot more there's a lot more awareness of um, our public mission and our you know our our responsibility for costs and um, you know what the systemic dysfunctions are and how to improve our system but um, it's not something that is really seen as essential to medicine in my experience as again as, as understanding chest pain and um, you know, folks who are really engaged with this stuff are, um, you know, we. When I talk about this kind of thing, it's it's more discussed as a niche rather than something that's central. Um, and I, I think what uh, an important thing that Shannon uh, described is the commodification. I think that term really speaks to the difference between public and private, and that it's easy to it's easier to point your finger at a problem for an individual patient. Um, but it's harder to put your finger on these bigger issues, and when we lack our ability to put a finger on it, um, we we lack an ability to address it and to and to improve it. And so for me, um, you know, I got engaged with this issue in medical school, the first uh, overuse conference, and um, throughout residency, I, I was I was definitely lonely, <laughs> and um, I I came in charged about doing yeah. things differently and um, found myself, you know. Kind of struggling in the weeds on my own and having these experiences with patients and um, and doctors and, and just having a hard time advocating for this position. And it's easy it's easy to step back. And the thing that's mattered for me a ton about the Right Care Alliance is you know as having a home where these issues matter and um, where we have a where we're developing a
0: plan. Okay, sounds good. Let's take a peek at some of, uh, Shannon and Aaron prepared a couple of slides that sort of just walk us through a little bit, John. Uh, maybe we'll start with this. Uh, so the week starts on October 18th. And um why don 't you just uh, just give us a sense? I think we have a, a few kind of of the activities also on on the next slide, but uh, we 'll kind of roll through these quickly okay
3: sure, so some of them so the, the 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 big idea is to is to offer an option to take a stand to take a, a small step of action of something more than just throwing our hands up in some sort of desperation with this stuff, and uh, we want to describe. Three of the actions. There are many different things that people are doing, but we want to describe three um, that uh, really encapsulate um, the mission here. And um, one of them is the overuse count. So this is um, a pretty simple, uh, a pretty simple idea for clinicians to um, take a take an accounting in their experience during their day of episodes where patients have received more care than would be appropriate. Um, and so it's simply to keep a log of these things, and then uh, at the end of the week, tally them up, and we have a spa- uh, space on the website where folks can upload their stories um, and their counts. Um another, another action is uh, doing a story slam, very similar to the Moth Radio Hour, where um, uh, mainly for trainees and students would uh, create a space, um, rent out an auditorium or a... Uh, and, and basically get together and share stories along a similar vein. Um, this year's theme is being mortal, and so it's sharing stories about how basically things went wrong or things went right um, at the end of life. And um, uh, lastly, there's this "What Right Care Means to Me" photo sharing option, where um, folks take a picture about basically their uh, a, a, a quick a quick assessment uh, to capture their vision for what. Right Care would be taking that picture and then sharing it uh, via Twitter, et cetera.
2: That would be me in that picture. Right? <laughs> <We> <laughs> and don't, Right Care means to me uh, it, yeah, it, we might as well is, is, and I happen to have found this, I have a primary care doctor that takes time, that we discuss everything and that he is acutely aware that more is not necessarily better. So it's incredibly, I'm really happy. And I can walk to the doctor's office. All right. Well, thanks. uh
0: <laughs> Thanks, Shannon. So all this stuff um, can, uh, well, maybe I wish we all could, you know, had... Uh, Pen and you know uh, markers here, and we could you know create some of our own in real time, too, but maybe you can as you're all listening right now. So these are the three main actions you sort of did a crowdsourcing thing on the website to gin up a lot of different ideas. And the one important thing is to get involved, but you can also now go to the website and uh, start sort of finding your way about the activities as well as uh, where to uh, share the information because you want to know what's going on. Um, It sounds like also there are already some story slams that are already taking place. That's right, Shannon. I mean,
2: we have hundreds of people signed up around the country to be involved in Right Care Action Week. There are... um, Tens of thousands of emails going out right now through various partner organizations. Um, and so we know that there are going to be many places around the country that are going to be doing these actions and other actions. Um, the story slam is, is really exciting because story is so powerful in how we learn about things, how we understand, um, the implications of, of, what happens to patients, Um, and there are three places that are definitely doing story slams, Um, UCSF, uh, med students and residents, University of Virginia, med students and nursing students, and um, uh, University of Colorado, I believe that's a a
0: residency program that's going to be doing that. Okay, that's really terrific. This is my moment when I want to say that you should log on to the Right Care Action Week website Uh, and we'll put there it's right there RightCareActionWeek all as one word dot org if you are using Internet Explorer despite promises from Microsoft to take down their mistakenly tagged warning sign that there's something um, amiss with the website there is nothing amiss Uh, it's all supposed to have been straightened out with Microsoft so if you use Internet Explorer and you get a a warning sign if you go to RightCareActionWeek.org proceed believe me I have and I have not infected my computer or my organizations. If you use Safari or Chrome or something else, you won't see that. But hopefully that's going to go away, uh, thanks to all the good work of the staff uh, uh, engaging with Microsoft on this. So this will kind of help you navigate. So thank you, Shannon and Aaron, for kind of at least uh, laying this out here. I want to turn now um, to uh, Jim Conway uh, and uh, Jim... Over the years, you've witnessed an awful lot of zeal, including some of your own, Mm -hmm. uh, for changing the status quo and a lot of heads in the sand, the opposite, um, at the same time. (laughs) I don't know if Jim could even tell us how many places he's spoken uh, in his career to try and exhort folks to change from boards to just about everybody and everybody in between. So um, I have two kind of questions. One is having to do with... um, With so many healthcare organizations now trying to position themselves to be aligned with value-driven care, payment reforms, a lot of new responsibilities, population health, do you think there's appropriate focus right now on overuse perhaps as part of that? And secondly, is care going to get so redesigned by virtue of these other things that we can expect, uh, social movement or not, that some of this overuse is going to somehow start um, withering away? sort of uh, rhetorical questions, I guess, but Jim can handle it. Jim.
4: Well, thank you, Madge. They're actually good questions, so let me do something unusual and answer them succinctly first, (laughs) and then I'll unbundle them with a little bit more depth. So your first one, is there an appropriate focus by governance and executive leadership on overuse and underuse? While there's a leading edge, I would have to say, overall, we're extraordinarily early in this journey. Is there hope that fundamental redesign will reduce overuse and, for that matter, underuse? I think at some level, yes, but frankly, I think we've all learned that expecting something or hoping something is going to happen doesn't work. Spray and pray is not an effective strategy. The big question is, so what's the recipe for going there? So as I unbundle your question a little bit, governing boards hear daily about value, better care at lower cost. They also hear it urgently. They're hearing it from regulators. They're hearing it from uh, legislators. They're hearing it from insurers. They're hearing it from the accreditors. But as a trustee I can tell you I'm hearing it from the public, I'm hearing it when I go to the barber shop, I'm hearing about it after church services, I'm seeing it on social media, I'm hearing about it in our from our employees. There is a sense of urgency around the balance sheet and the balance sheet isn't working. So what I would like to do is go to this first slide. I was privileged to be part of the Institute of Medicine that in 2012 prepared a report called Better Care at Lower Cost, and some stunning data came out of this report. The committee estimated that in 2009, approximately $750 billion, that's a B as in billion, $750 billion of health care was delivered in the United States that added no value. Every major newspaper in the country picked up that number. I've just given you a few there. Why? Because that's money people want to spend on homes or they want to spend on education, or they want to spend on infrastructure, or they may want to spend it on primary care, or they maybe want to put it back into their purses, into their wallets, or back into their savings accounts. Extraordinarily sobering and real data. I think at the highest level, trustees who exist to serve the community get the notion of value-driven system. The right care at the right place at the right time every time. But we're unbelievably early in understanding how we translate this goal into a series of very specific integrated strategies and tactics that can really drive change and improvement. This clearly is not plug and play. It's also very clear from the core work of IHI that this is all about systematic improvement. I want to spend some time, second or so, on the next slide, Madge. I was also part of the recent IOM committee that issued a report on optimizing the scheduling system in healthcare. And, um, if we can go back.
0: We're going. Yeah. <laughs> There's Our scrolling slides and they have decided to be a mind of their own here in our system, so John's going to go back to right care, right place, right time. He, he's hit the right button, uh, Jim. For some reason, we've got some sort of a delay here, so uh,
4: well, I'm keep an, at it. I'm you, you'll
1: want to be on slide 14 if you're following at home.
4: <laughs> I'm a grandfather, so I know how that happens <laughs> all the time where things spontaneously get out of control. <laughs> right. What the committee found that if we really want to optimize access, it's not just by adding more people or if it's not just by adding more slots. It is going to take a very systematic approach, and as part of that systematic approach, it may be no appointment at all. It may be a phone call. It may be an email. It may be something which is an immediate consult. This whole notion of systematic approaches. What I'd like to do then is, here you can see up on the screen, this slide, this report, and the notion that you can't just add slots and fix it. This is part of an overall systematic approach that we have to embrace. The, if we go to this last slide here, this is also out of the prior report of the IOM, Better Care and Lower Costs. And sort of beating something that I've talked about earlier is our solutions to this right care will only be effective if they're systematic. And what the IOM defined a learning healthcare system is one that's grounded in science and data that embraces the patient clinician partnerships that is outcomes oriented and outcomes directed and builds a continuous learning culture focused on an extraordinary amount of collaboration what excites me as a trustee as i reviewed the materials from the Red Care Initiative is it's anchored in these notions. It's anchored in systematic approaches. While we're starting, there is clearly an overall system, and it's clearly focused around collaboration. This is not something that governing boards and executive leaders can solve alone. This will only be solved with a dynamic partnership with the patients, the families, the staff, the public, the leadership of the organization. Thank you so much, uh, Jim,
0: and uh, always um, so observant. And Jim has been involved in a lot of these you know big uh thinking exercises but always very very close uh to patients and families uh throughout and i think has has brought that we're going to bring kedar in uh for uh this, some comments shannon wanted to say something very quickly um i i i'm looking at myself on the screen i don't know what you're looking at but um <laughs> <laughs> Maybe somebody could chat in and tell us which slide you see. There's KDAR. Okay. So believe me, we're, we're trying to make it all work here. It's just technology, okay? And uh, Shannon wanted to say something, then I'm going to bring KDAR in. Go Great. ahead, Shannon.
2: Jim, thanks so much for your really wonderful comments. Um, I, w- I just wanted to comment on this this idea that we need to bring the public in. We don't actually have mechanisms to do that, um, and that's really one of the, 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 the long-term goals of the Right Care Alliance is that we know that we have to start working with community activists, with churches, with religious activists and leaders, because we need to create a mechanism for people in communities to talk about what it is they need in terms of health care. Um, bringing in one patient into a panel or you know some mm-hmm. advisory group and there's one patient there is not going to do it. Mm-hmm. It's got to be truly integrated into a democratic process that truly allows members of the, informed members of the public to be involved in how we allocate resources because that's really what it boils down to is where are we putting all the money and why are we not putting the money into the things that ordinary people really need.
0: Okay, thank you both and thanks, Shannon. Um, all right, Katar, you're there, you're there on the phone um, and... um You know, Kedar always brings an interesting lens uh, about the science of improvement to just about every issue, deeply involved in a lot of IHI's innovation work, Um, and I think overuse uh, and this greater public engagement and mobilization is something he also has been thinking about in in terms of uh, improvement science. So, Kedar, welcome, and your thoughts, uh, please. Thanks.
5: Yeah, th- thank you, Madge. This is a, what a rich conversation. And um, I just want to pick up on this last comment that Jim was making um, and that uh, uh, Dr. Farrow has picked up on as well in the chat. I know we're going to get to the chat shortly here, but um, the idea of, uh, you know, making this concept of appropriate use or reducing overuse and increasing necessary use uh, into a, taking a systematic approach to this, I think we can get even more, uh, uh, even more uh, clear about the message here I think we can we can start to say something like we need to make appropriate use a system property we need to really think hard about how to make uh, this kind of uh, reducing under you, overuse sorry into a system property now I want to go back to something that I think uh, Shannon you were alluding to at the at the beginning when you were saying that we were Uh, You know, that it's not just enough to uh, eliminate unnecessary care, but we have to actually replace that unnecessary care with necessary care. Uh, Atul Gawande, um, in one of his uh, recent New Yorker pieces, Overkill, uh, really uh, pointed out a number of ways in which uh, overuse was harming our systems and our society more broadly. Um, and in that article, he 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 says the following, which is, I thought, a very uh, appropriate quote, unnecessary care often crowds out necessary care, but that is not enough to eliminate unnecessary care. We've got to replace it with necessary care. And this is where I think the science of improvement can be very helpful. We have, as a group, as a community of scientific improvers, uh, we have, for years, focused on how to reduce unwanted variation, how to eliminate disparities in care, how to uh, improve the uh, delivery of evidence-based effective care and how to reduce or eliminate uh the non-evidence-based you know often uh, extremely costly and and, and uh, care that doesn't necessarily benefit patients and families in the way that we hope it might scientific improvement methods uh the model for improvements uh aims measure changes plan to study act cycles uh, have systematically been shown uh, time and again to improve the delivery of evidence-based care. And I think that's uh, going to be, you know, to get back to the original point I was making, to make appropriate use a system property, I think is going to require us to use you know, scientific approaches to management and improvement in order for us to do that. Um, the, there's one uh, uh, idea, one of the three ideas that the uh, Right Care Week is, is promoting, this idea of an overuse count, I think is particularly amenable to scientific improvement there's gonna be a count that institutions are gonna be able to produce, um, and that's gonna be some number um, of overuse uh, events that have happened to patients and families. Um, And knowing that number gives you a target, gives you an aim, gives you uh, the basis for starting to make a change. And inevitably, as the collection of stories builds, um, I think some very useful practices are gonna emerge in this community uh, of folks that are trying to combat this problem, uh, that we can be systematically applied moving forward. So the overuse count gives us something we can plot on run charts, on statistical process control charts moving forward, that allows us as a community of scientific improvers to make a difference. We can set new goals and systematically pursue them uh, moving forward. And just one last comment on this concept of kind of the, what I, what I love, uh, so much about Right Care Action Week and what the Lown Institute is doing is, is the idea of, of moving towards movement building. I, I, I couldn't be more uh, thrilled with this idea. Aaron, you said it when you said, you know, being on your own, being lonely in this is, is the kind of thing that's gonna, uh, potentially uh, you know has the potential to end your participation in such a thing but the idea of building a movement to building the kind of social cohesion necessary uh, to see this kind of thing happen a movement that has a scientific basis I mean, there is uh, as I' uh, you know we've talked about at IHI there and studied at IHI there is a, a science to how to build and develop movements over time we learned a lot of this from Marshall Gans um, and his work in political and community organizing uh, movements that have clear aims, leaders that focus on removing barriers, that deliver guidance to, to individuals and organizations for execution, uh, that have a bias towards testing and action, and that leverage their existing networks and fundamentally, ultimately, unleash the power of the network. Um, those are movements that are dynamic and that succeed. And I think the idea of building a, 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 a at first perhaps a provider-oriented network, uh, movement. Uh, but ultimately one that engages patients directly, uh, direct-to-consumer, if you will, or direct-to-patient, I think is going to be something that will uh, potentially change the game here. So looking forward to seeing how this develops over the next few months.
4: Thanks, Uh,
0: Kedar. Yeah, thanks, Kedar, as are we. And uh, since we're talking about something that gets underway in just a couple of weeks, uh, you can definitely uh, track things uh, through uh, the Right Care Alliance and Right Care Action Week website, but also ihi.org will be tracking and trying to also further on social media keep track of what's going on. All right. Well, we put out a lot of stuff, and I want to thank those of you who have already been participating on the chat and laying out some of your thoughts, uh, drawing some strong analogies. Of course, uh, Lachlan Farrow, thank you very much with the Conversation Project and End of Life. And there we have a big example also in many ways of a social movement, uh, really building uh, the momentum and, and uh, putting really the pressure on the system uh, to respond to real needs and uh, desires. And um, we want to hear now more from you, our audience, uh, what you've got on your mind, uh, if you're connected to this, if you're doing some things in your own organizations already uh, that you think are, you know, part of this theme. Maybe you can tie it into Right Care uh, Action Week. Uh, John, just very quickly remind folks how to chat in just in case uh, people haven't uh, gotten that yet.
1: Yeah, of course. If you are uh, going to comment or question in the uh, chat, be sure that your uh, questions or comments are addressed to all participants down in the Send To bar at the bottom right-hand corner of your screen.
0: All right, great. Thanks, Uh Lachlan uh, has gotten has a lot of information there. Thank you. That's why I always remind people uh, if you can't catch it all now, you can certainly download the chat when we're done with the show. It gets posted to ihi. Uh, dot org as well the the archive page. All right, um, I'm kind of scrolling back up. So Megan says. Um, I don't know if it's so, or it's, uh, phys- or if it's a dude. If you- is that what you meant? Do physicians need to be compensated? Not to over treat their patients. I want to make sure I had do all the <laughs> right negatives or double negatives in there. Um, interesting question. Uh, so I'm not sure how that all works, but there must be a way to think that one through. I don't know who who wants to tackle that one. If if uh, does that resonate <laughs> for you,
3: Aaron? I think, yeah, I mean uh, that resonates. I think it's so. It's, it's interesting to talk about systems and um, yeah, and talk about change. And I think. I mean, maybe I'm more of a reductionist. <laughs> um, yeah. That that so much of this comes from not being able to understand patients and what they want, and as you know, as 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 the bedrock for you know how care goes well and how it doesn't go well. And um, you know, we talk about paying physicians not to over treat is really just screams at me as as compensating physicians for being able to take the time, create a a, a way of work where you can take the time. And you have an incentive more than just your own, you know, human heart to really understand what the person wants and needs from the monstrosity that medical care can offer them. And um, I, yeah, I think, and that's a that's a massive systems question: is how do you, how do you create a time, and incentive for a physician to really ask and know? And um, what I like about the Action Week is a lot of these actions are simply mm-hmm. actually doing that. It's saying, you know. Um, uh, telling stories. What is your story? What are you looking to get from your care? Um, one of the actions we're doing is uh, calling it a least listening booth, and it's simply saying, you know, healthcare has lost its way in many regards. What are, you, what is it missing for you? And um, you know, to start from listening and to embed listening into a, a key feature of what doctors do would be would be a massive.
2: Well, those of you that are around, um, that are in Boston, can um, can probably find. Aaron and his listening booth and some some <laughs> other people sitting with him um, outside of Trader Joe's, outside of various places, actually asking people on the street that question. I, I just wanted to say one thing from the perspective of of being a patient and knowing patients. Um, patients, I think, are going to respond to this a little differently, which is, you mean you got to pay the doctor to do the right thing and not do the wrong thing and not do something that actually harms me? I think maybe a different way of framing it might be um, is there a different payment model, and I'm going to put my policy wonk hat on for one second. Um, Fee-for-service is part of the problem very, very clearly. No matter how unpleasant and painful that is for physicians to think about, there is a very, it may be unconscious or whatever, but when you get paid to do more, you do more. Um, and salaries are probably going to be necessary. But that said, even systems in Western Europe, in Canada, and in other places in the world where physicians are salaried, there is a problem of overuse. So this is not simply a money problem. It's a really multifactorial problem.
0: Thanks. Jim. Yes. Man,
4: For the many years, I've been a trustee of the Winchester Hospital in Massachusetts, and one of the privileges we have as trustees is we join patient safety rounds. A few weeks ago, we were rounding on one of the patient care units, and we asked staff what growing dilemmas were that they were dealing with. Is One that they're dealing with is this whole question of, Do I really need this test because my deductible is so large? Is there another option? And what I thought is how are we creating a space to begin to even allow staff to deal with these questions and how are we providing them counsel on how to deal with that questions? That's back to the hope word. And, and I think the hope word isn't a successful strategy. Any of you who follow ePatient Dave on Facebook know Dave has been adamant about this for quite some time as an engaged patient with a huge deductible. So I think what's happening right now on a case by case basis with extraordinary variation, these conversations are already going on in our care systems but we as leaders haven't effectively put in place systems that enable staff to navigate the, the, through these in a way that they feel they're respecting the patient, but also effectively practicing medicine.
0: Yes, thanks, Jim. I know that's a lot what cost of care is trying to do, is sort of help people have uh, these conversations. Minimally disruptive medicine, I think, has been also trying to figure out uh, it takes the sort of shared decision. decision. Decision making almost to a new level, and also brings money into it. uh, Not in a way to uh, deny something somebody's needs, but to make that at least a a factor. Shannon, you want to, it looked like you wanted to say something. Oh, okay. I just wanted to be short. Sure just agreeing vehemently. Just agreeing <laughs> vehemently. All right. A couple of questions. Uh, this gets to the, uh, question or issue of defensive medicine. Um, somebody is asking, don't physicians sometimes make treatment decisions in the sincere belief patients don't understand the risks of their choices and are going to be endangered by that or that they will be, um, they, I assume we mean here, the physicians, they will be the victims of a survivors' question their, conduct. Um, So that, of course, is something that's been with us for a long time, and it reminds me of something else uh, that's been with us for a while, but Shannon, go ahead and reply.
2: So when I give talks to physicians, um, I've been doing this for a while now, and I always say, um, what do you think drives overuse? And when I first started giving them, there was a fair number of people who said it doesn't exist, so why are you asking? But now um, physicians are much more likely to recognize and acknowledge the problem. And the first cause out of their mouths is defensive meth- medicine, and the second one is patient demand. And we know from many, many, many studies that these are indeed two of the drivers of overuse, but they are only two, and they are not even the most important two. There are many, many other factors that, um, that influence physician decisions that lead to unnecessary care so um th- it, it's important that we think about defensive medicine, but it has been kind of held up as well it, you know this
0: if you fix this, everything else will go away, and it won't. Thank you um. Kator, how does that strike you, um, I don't know, as you work with providers in terms of sort of fears of not pro- not doing something, uh, not being sure if maybe patients are fully able to make some of these uh, decisions, and then there's that demand side. I mean, that's been something that's been around for a long time, uh, that patients are marching in, so the uh, stereotype yep. goes, uh, with all kinds uh-huh. of information and, want- and asking for more things. Yeah, you know, I think that's exactly right.
5: I think that it, what, what Shannon said was it was exactly what I was thinking, which is that this is this is uh, commonly raised uh, by physicians as is sort of the number one, what they think is the number one driver of the overuse problem, uh, toward or or medical legal issues as well as defensive medicine as well as patient demand, uh, and, and 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 my thought about this is that this in part comes down to. Uh, And while it is a factor, it's not the dominant factor, but, you know, part of this comes down to, for me, uh, the way that the patient and the physician relate to one another and how those treatment decisions get made. And, you know, one of the biggest drivers, and we've done a lot of work on this now in our research and development team at IHI, uh, looking at so what are the kind of principles for improving value in any system. And some of the things that are on that list are things that you might expect like things like simplifying the system or standardizing the system or improving the coordination of the system. Uh, but one of the most powerful drivers of improving the value of uh, uh, performance of the system is improving medical decision-making. And the way to do that at the heart of that in the end is, is the provider and patient sitting down and, and making and arriving at a decision together, you know, with all the relevant information. And we've seen a variety of shared decision-making supports, tools, uh, guides, Frameworks, approaches, et cetera, uh, and which are, uh, some of which are helpful and, you know, many of which are are useful in some ways. Uh, But in the end, you know, that's, I think, what's going to come down, what this is going to come down to in terms of both uh, avoiding a defensive decision on the part of the physician as well as uh, mitigating or changing or negotiating the, the potential demand from the patient. And just as one example, we've been working on this with regards to medication treatments and, you know, medication use. And as many of you know, there's there, you know, some of our patients, especially those with multiple chronic diseases, are on, you know, several medicines, often medicines that... Are on the, the med list for reasons that were have now expired. You know, no longer need to be on those medications, but they still are for whatever reason. And we have built uh, within our research team a decision support tool for patients and providers to try to optimize the medication regimen that patients are on. And and at the heart of it is. The idea of building a more trusting uh, uh, negotiation, and I think that is what a lot of this, uh, th- these two elements in particular come down to.
0: Aaron, I want to ask you. Thanks, Kedar. Um, does this resonate as you go about your work uh, as a hospitalist and your colleagues? When people, you know, shared decision-making, I mean, is that on the minds, you know, part of what Right Care Action Week to me is putting the spotlight on is almost sort of everyday activities. The opportunities are, they're, they're abundant um, to start changing things, you know, in the next encounter, um, all the tracking, of course, everything that people are talking about to see how it can be all rolled up. But the next patient you go in to see you know is what's on the mind of the provider. how are we going to make a good shared uh decision and consciousness and i I'm, I'm curious if that's taking hold in a way uh, you know these this this value drive seems to be a lot in that encounter and having that relationship that can have that conversation what do you think um, so speaking <laughs>
3: speaking from an admittedly <laughs> limited experience, I would say it's in the uh, in the in the patient room, it's not often there, um, and it's it's a hard thing to bring into the culture. And the culture, at least in the training aspect of things, is is um, very focused on making sure you've got all your bases covered and making sure you've. Um, thought out a very detailed differential and making sure you have every test that you could think of that could connect and solidify this differential and and that is the inherent I think insecurity the inherent um, battle basically when I go to work is boy I want to make sure I've got all the bases covered and um, uh, having a long conversation with the patient does not make that easier um, and that is it's it is a barrier to um, the nuts and bolts of how, how i've seen medicine practiced um i don't mean to be fatalistic or pessimistic about it because um the other thing that struck me is how different things are with different clinicians with different mentors mm-hmm. with different preceptors in different um you know in the primary care clinic um that i worked in you if you're in a different uh, precepting room there's a different air quality to the air and um Different things are emphasized, and I think all of this stuff can change pretty rapidly. And I think um, I think I am overwhelmed at just how well-meaning almost everybody is that I encounter, um, and we and we all want to do this stuff. Um, and uh, you know, I, but when we get to the point where we really insert the time to do effective shared decision making. Um, I think Jim said it very well. It, it's very early. It just feels very early. And right.
0: Well, what, what may need to happen is, first of all, the notion that it's a long conversation, um, <laughs> needs to be s- sort of unpacked. Is it always, is that, you know, go, go hand in hand with actually making a decision? Um, Somebody is asking, Jeff here is asking, uh, can the Right Care Alliance make use of some of the choosing wisely recommendations to empower slash inform consumers about low-value health care, ways that patients can confront or raise with an MD uh, the uh, issue of low-value health care? And... uh, I, I imagine there's a lot of synergy you know with the tools and you're in some ways Shannon acting as a bigger megaphone around this right now. Y- you bet um, in fact it, the the slide on
2: on the right care count um, suggests in the instructions that you can find on the Right Care Action Week website about how to do each of these particular actions um, says, learn about overuse, learn to spot overuse, what things are commonly overused. And one of the resources is the Choosing Wisely lists um, that are available. There are other resources as well. There's, um, so it, absolutely, it's a way of getting clinicians more um, sensitized to overuse. But we think that next year's Right Care Action Week is going to include a lot more patients, patient advocates, community groups, et cetera and they too can start being sensitized to the kinds of things that um, that are often overused.
0: Okay, very, very good. All right, um, I'd love it if people could uh, thank you for the chat, uh, questions and comments, and uh, if anybody uh, is thinking of some actions, if you're going to do the count, maybe you could just let us know uh, if you're going to participate in that, if any of you have some idea about a uh, story slam uh, uh Please put that in. Um, I think what we should start to do is maybe get some kind of uh, summary comments from everybody uh, in terms of where we're headed. Uh, Keep chatting in, though, folks, questions and comments. We'll see if we can get to a few more. But, um, Jim, let me start with you in terms of your thoughts about... uh, I don't know, the intersection, I guess, of a lot of things, and uh, watch this space. Maybe what makes you optimistic and more sanguine, perhaps, at the same time? Yeah.
4: Well, let me first yeah. um, start out with a worry, uh, but it also converts. My worry is I define the current environment as having an epidemic of projectitis. There are so many projects going on and people are drowning under a waterfall of unconnected things. The Right Care Initiative is fundamental to the primacy of the patient and family. It's fundamental to the mission of every hospital. So instead of just having a few people going off and do this, I would really work with your organization to have this be a test of change to achieve an overall strategy and not just another thing. And because, you know, the other thing I would just push at the end is the inclusion of the patient. I'm a diabetic, long-term diabetic. 80% of the care I receive in my lifetime, I receive in my kitchen, my bathroom, and my bedroom. And so, you know, I have a team at the BI Deaconess, I have my own clinical pharmacist. I, we work around a very rich electronic health record in the management of that care together. And what I've learned as a leader, if you wanna know how the system is working, talk to the people who receive care under the system. So I would encourage everybody to find ways to include patients and families as part of this work going forward. But absolutely, we are not going to figure out our balance sheet problems until we have addressed the issues that have been identified by the IOM and on this call.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Jim. Kedar, thoughts from you. I saw you chatted in Make Right Care a System Property.
5: Yeah, well, that gets right at you know what Jim was just saying. If we, if we continue to do this uh, work as individual projects uh, you know uh, individual little pilot tests or something along those lines um, it's going to be difficult for us to make substantive progress at, because the, the the scope of the problem is gigantic I and mean, jim mentioned earlier the 750 billion dollars another way of characterizing the problem is the percentage of our gdp that's spent on health right now and if you look at which which don berwick and others have pointed out if you look at state budgets and you look at the growth of medical expenditure and the consequence on other social sectors, um, it's inverse in relationship. Healthcare spending growing, other social sectors spending uh, falling. And it's just we have no choice, I think, at this point other than to make Right Care a system property and to execute this work at, at scale. So I'm, I'm really excited about what right, the Right Care Alliance is doing and about this Action Week because I think it gives us the first step in a, in a long series of steps. But uh that's going to be necessary to make this into a systematic work.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you, Kadar. Uh Aaron, thoughts from you. Um,
3: what was that? You use the phrase Projectitis. Project <laughs> I think that's really that's really compelling. <laughs> and um, Yeah, I I think at the at the end of the day we have to we have to reconnect or we have to find a way to connect with what patients want. Uh otherwise healthcare is gonna give them stuff they don't want. And um, for this not to be another element of Project-itis, I, uh, my hope is that we'll build kind of a bedrock of patient stories. Um, and, you know, the next phase of this will be, will, be, will be built off of that, and it won't be another one-off.
0: And that's, that's my hope, and we'll see how we can make that work. Okay. Thanks for your hard work on this, Aaron. Mm-hmm. All right. Shannon, you get the last word. Thank you, Madge. Um,
2: and thanks to Kadar and Jim and, and Aaron for all of your good comments. The, I'll let you in on the long-term strategy here. It's to bring the healthcare professionals in the Right Care Alliance together with community activists, with religious leaders, with church groups, with, um, poverty activists to begin a long-term process of public engagement around healthcare. Um, healthcare has been done by the experts for too long and we are now facing the fact that this is not about persuasion and it's not about multiple projects, although those all those projects are incredibly important and have to be done. It's about money and power. And health care has too much money and power right now, and it's not going to give it up easily. And in the history of the world, um, people with a lot of money and a lot of power don't give it up without pressure from the outside. And that's why we see the Right Care Alliance ultimately having to be a partnership and ultimately having to involve public engagement and public deliberation
0: and ultimately involving political action. But that's down the road. All right. Well, we're going to go and follow this road and see how it goes. And we're going to start with Right Care Action Week on October 18th. Um, it's been a real honor to try and bring a number of ideas and activities together with the ongoing thinking here at IHI. I want to thank our wonderful audience for joining us uh, today and my guests, Aaron Stuppel, Sharon Brownlee, Jim Conway, and Kadar Mate. Um, Next up on WIHI on October 15th, uh, we're going to talk about something else that's bubbling, and that has to do uh, with the greater and greater use of community health workers and team-based care. And we're going to have some really, really interesting panelists who come at this from um, deep experience and some interesting perspectives. So you can uh, sign up for that program, actually, right after this one today. I want to remind everyone that you can download the chat and any slides we use today for our discussion. Uh, You can be prompted to do so, and you will be prompted to do so as you log off. You'll also be asked to complete a brief survey, which we hope you'll do so we can know how to keep making this a valuable show for you. The archive page uh, for all the elements, including the audio, audio goes live tomorrow morning on ihi.org. It also gets uploaded onto iTunes. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at ihi.org, and you can always feel free to suggest future topics. Again, thank you. Thanks, audience. Thanks, panelists. There are other people who help make WIHI possible. They are John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Ruth James, Caroline Claxton, and Haley Ladd. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thanks for joining everyone. I'm Madge Kaplan. Have a good day.